Sweet Valley Online. This week we are discussing Lois Strikes Back. I'm Raven and I am Fat. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Wing and Dove. I'm Wing, I am also fat, and I like to ride bikes. I'm Dove, I'm also fat, I'm not so fussed about bikes, or even this book. In Lois Strikes Back, we finally get to see Sweet Valley through the eyes of its apparently fattest inhabitant, Lois Waller. She is keen to enter a school bikeathon, a 30-mile bike ride with a sponsorship element to raise funds for some instructional videos and equipment for the PTA. Whomsoever raises the most money wins an exciting prize, an 18-speed mountain bike capable of riding on sand, water and the surface of the sun. Of course, there is a problem. She's too damn fat! Well, at least that's what the nasty Bruce Patman would have us and her believe, as would the unicorns. Liz and the Sixers doubt she can pull it off. The ghostwriter isn't too sure either. Even Lois herself believes she's unlikely to do it. In fact, it's only the readers who believe, and possibly the person who came up with the bloody title. Lois works hard to raise a large amount of sponsorship money. Bruce tries to outdo her with the richness jackhammer, but can only top her total if he completes the race and she doesn't. The total sponsorship cash is determined by brack quick maths, dollars pledged per mile multiplied by miles travelled. Lois puts up a formidable 22 miles total. Bruce? He speeds off alone and posts a final tally of 30 miles dead. Bruce, it seems, is the winner. But of course, we can't leave it there, lest the book be called Bruce Bikes to Victory. Things are indeed rotten in the state of Patman, and Elizabeth uses mystery-solving logic to deduce that Bruce couldn't possibly have completed the course in the time or the manner that he suggests. Using the Rob Reiner stroke Tom Cruise technique from A Few Good Men, the gang manoeuvre the hapless Bruce into confessing his cheating ways. Sweet Valley, it seems, can handle the truth, and Bruce is stripped of his prize in disgrace. Lois wins a bike. Yay, Lois. In a future book, I'm sure we'll be told she sold it and bought a metric fuckton of chocolate pudding, because Sweet Valley writers are ballsacks. Lois strikes back. Bleh. Well, you've just killed Wing. She's, um... Yeah, I can't work out whether she was choking throughout that or amused, but she was dying either way. Same colour as her top. By the way, uh, listeners, uh, Wing is wearing a purple shirt and a glittery silvery grey sweater over the top. Wing is dressed as a unicorn. She is. I believe in dressing for the occasion, just like a unicorn. Yes, dress Uh, for the job you want. It's a great looking sweater. It is a great looking sweater. I win outfit-wise. Dove wins for appropriate Stark, though, so good work. And Raven wins because I was dying of laughter throughout that summary. Good, I'm glad you liked it. Yes. So what do people think of this book? Well, first of all, I thought there was a flaw in the whole sponsorship thing, uh, before we get into the whole characterization and general bollocks. Because, as I remarked on your recap, uh, we used to have to do a walk. Um, I can't give it a better title than that because it was known as the location walk and it's a very specific location. While you could get sponsored per mile, you could also get sponsored overall. So if you wanted to cap off at, say, pound fifty, you just, you know, tick the overall rather than per mile. And we're roughly the same age as the kids in Sweet Valley, like growing up in the same era. So Bruce Patman could have easily just gone, 
Yeah, I'm going to do a mile and I got $600 overall from Mummy and Daddy Warbucks. In your face, Lois. Yeah, that is true. I mean, I, I made the same point in the recap. I, I, I think I attributed that sort of Machiavellian richness, Machiavellian richness to Lila because I thought Lila would be the person to do it. Not Good point. Not, not realising that Lila was just like, yeah, balls to that, which is also very <laughs> Lila. Um, however, I think the book did set out that you couldn't do that, or at least nobody was doing that. It was very clear. And usually when we did a sponsored thing at school, we weren't given a sort of prize at the end of it. The prize was helping the community, uh, taking part. There was no, there was no, and if you raise the most money, you get a cookie. Yeah, that's true. I think anyone who did the full 24 mile lap of uh, the sponsored walk that I was talking about uh, got their names in the newspaper, but that would then justify the newspaper because fuck all happened in that town. Like, it was a 16-page newspaper, and it was always filled with just, like, want ads and stuff like that. So, Well, I was going to say that you could tell Raven is a little bit older than we are, because back in his day, kids did things just for the joy of helping, and we had to be... And we had to be bribed for to do the right thing. However, apparently Dove didn't get a real prize either. Over here in America, we definitely win prizes for having the most sold. But generally that goes to the people whose parents can afford to either pay for everything to get them that prize or whose parents work in an office environment where they can take it in and do the sponsorship and or sales for their kids. So, you know, still not fair. But there's a prize, damn it. The the issue I had with the sponsorship thing was they seemed to be spons- getting getting sponsors from people who they had no way of getting the sponsorship money from. Just walking yeah. up to random strangers in queues or going to the bus station where people were obviously leaving Sweet Valley and getting sponsors from them. And you could just say, yes, I'll sponsor a million quid. Where where do you live? I, I live on the sun. Bye. So <laughs> I suppose you need the bike then to be able to ride on the, on the sun to go and collect the cash. Um, at least they did mention that there was uh, that um, uncollected pledges didn't count, which is fair because you could just say yes, I've been sponsored by a Moomin. The Moomin has pledged me a million pounds. Yes, I win. Thank you. Yeah, up until I read your recap, the absurdity of getting sponsorship at the bus station had never hit me, but once it did, wow. Even though we were kind of supportive of it in the recap of Lois putting up her pledge sheet at a grocery store, I'm still concerned about what sort of information was being put out there. Did people leave their phone numbers or their addresses in public for her to contact them again? It's kind of a similar issue. If this had happened in England, it would just be covered in penises. She'd come back 10 minutes later and there would be nothing but penises. Occasionally sponsorship from Dick McPenis, who is sponsoring five penises a mile. And what will you give me if I do 30 miles? You want to give me the D. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think it'll have been phone numbers because it did mention in the in the book that she, she did phone them to ask to make sure that they knew what they were getting into. I definitely was thinking that was the uh, retirement home, but you're right. It probably was the actual people. Yeah, talking of the retirement home, I did like the retirement home. I thought the, um, yeah. the people at the retirement home were lovely. Yeah, was it Mrs. Williams was her name? Just yeah. saying, oh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Lois going, well, I don't want to bother everyone. She's like, well, I do. I can bother anyone here. I don't care. Everyone's really bored. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's great. That's, that's really good. Yeah, hashtag life goals. I want to be a difficult old lady. You, you already are. Yeah, don't. 
<laughs> I was going there too. You definitely already achieved that life goal. A plus yep. job there, Doug. Yeah, yeah. Okay, aside from the sponsorship, um, what did people think of the other issues of the book? Because I went into this really worried that there'd be hideous amounts of fat shaming as usual. And yes, that did happen. But as I mentioned in the recap, there are certain levels of it in a book that's about that that I'd sort of accept. Because yes, the, the, the bad characters, if you like, like Bruce, and to an extent Jessica and the unicorns, you sort of expect them to do that in a book about that sort of thing. Because you hope at the end of it they get their comeuppance and things go wrong and yay, the fatties win, if you like to put it that way. And that did happen. So there was large swathes of the fat shaming that I was, I was okay with because they were part of the narrative. Usually it's when they're in the other books and it's just throw away comments and let's, let's, let's just, let's cut in and see what Lois is doing today. Oh, she's eating loads of food and being fat. Ha 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 ha. Let's get back to the story. That's the stuff that really winds me up. Overall, I agree with you with the whole, you know, this was a book about Lois beating her oppressor because he's constantly going on about her weight. So the fat shaming in that sort of context was fine. It was more the fact that Lois didn't really beat him. It was Liz, as always, that beat him with her. Oh, I'm going to trick him into, I'm going to, you know, tell Lois what to say to trick him into confessing that he twatted his bike up and... um only did like three miles or whatever it was. It was Liz who came up with the, the victory, the path to victory. But Lois did beat him. She put 22 miles in and earned all the money. That's true. I was more, not upset, but I was more disappointed that Lois just seemed really wet throughout the whole thing. Mm. I mean, I think we've been spoiled by your version of Lois from from Jessica versus Elizabeth, where she's a lot more feisty and a lot uh, a lot cooler. In my head, that's what she's like. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of sort of set out Ellen and Lois, but Ellen's a lot closer to canon, whereas Lois is just what I want her to be because a little bit of fat representation and fuck you, you twinny, skinny bellends. I definitely think Dove's impression of her, what Dove wants out of her, colored my impression, both because of the story and because when you've talked up this book previously, there's been a little bit of a feel that she is feistier. She does get to do an actual comeuppance on them. And she does. I mean, as Raven said, she actually beats him and she does all this work to get pledges where other people are kind of just fucking off there and either not doing the work or giving up early, Jessica. But uh, she did just come across as kind of flat. I wanted her, at least the stuff from her internal point of view, I wanted her to be feistier or more uh, supportive of herself, more confident in herself. This just felt like stereotypes of fat teens and preteens in other ways. Even though I agree when the book does stuff like the uh, fat hate from Bruce and Jessica the Unicorns to some extent, it works because it is a part of the story in a way that it's moving the story along. It fits with the story. This is the story they're telling. But also that he, it's presented as him being an asshole. Whereas a lot of times with Jessica and the Unicorns, it's kind of not. It's just presented as, yes, they're overall very judgmental, but they're not uh, necessarily being extra dickish because of this particular thing. Where I think that was handled surprisingly better in this book. Uh, where it kind of went off the rails for me is that Elizabeth, while she doesn't come out the same way that Bruce or the unicorns do, Elizabeth has a lot of internalized fat hate too, and just not believing as simple. Obviously, she can't do these things because she's fat. And as we talked in an episode or two ago, 
it's these books are kind of set up where Elizabeth is always the good guy, even when Jessica's being sort of good herself. Elizabeth is always the one in the right. So to have her be getting away with that too starts to look very different than the antagonist having fat hate and getting a comeuppance for it. I'd have liked to have actually seen Lois react to the bullying like even if it was Lois going home locking herself in her bedroom pulling the duvet over the head and crying for 45 minutes that would have been a reaction whereas she sort of like takes it on the chin as if yes I am fat and I need to be punished like there's no emotional reaction there's just sort of like I don't even want to say weary resignation because that sort of allows an air of cynicism where she's like, oh, this is the world, like in a kind of bitchy, bitter way, which is how I've felt in the past. Whereas it feels like Lois is thinking that in a very earnest way. It's like, yes, I am fat and that is bad. And yes, okay, it's not perfectly healthy to be overweight, but you're allowed to emotionally feel bad about it. You know, if someone's mean about the way you look, Even if you agree with them, you're allowed to go home and cry in the bath or whatever. And it would have humanised her. I'm possibly not explaining this very well, but it it felt like she was just Elizabeth in a fat suit, you know? I know. I think you explained it very well because you're right. It doesn't humanise her, even though this is a book about her and in a lot of places from her perspective in some ways. We don't really get anything of her. She is still just this very flat character that doesn't have emotions or doesn't really take too much action and what action she does take and I do like that she goes out of her way to get all of these uh, pledges in very clever ways most of that happens off screen we're just kind of told about it later like her putting it up at the grocery store we learn about it from a distance so even then she doesn't super come across as clever and proactive she's just kind of there like always which is unfortunate from a book that's about her and from her perspective I feel like in other books where we've got it from peripheral characters they had much more personality uh, come through on the page yeah well I'm thinking about later books and there's there's a book where a character is realizing the significance of having a Jewish grandfather that was around for World War Two, or a kid that's being uh, beaten up at home. And you get a very emotional reaction to these things, whereas Lois is just like, yep, I'm fat, I'm doing a thing, but don't forget I'm fat. You know, it, it's just very factual. Lois fatly walked into the room. Uh, well, it's not even that, really. I think they could have made Lois's character's redemption or victory, if you like, much better if they'd have just put a little bit of thought into her speech at the end. Because the speech at the end was just like, oh, I want a bike. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I tried really hard. Bye. You know, and it was just like such a letdown. It was just so drab and dull. And you're like, if that had been a bit more powerful or had a little thought put into it, it could have been a great denouement to the book. But it just wasn't there, which is such a shame. Um, but if you go back as well to the stuff when she was reacting to the fat thing, uh, to Bruce's taunting, her reaction was all very immediate. It was very, Lois looked like she was about to cry. And then as soon as Bruce walked away, Elizabeth going, you okay? She said, yeah, yeah, Bruce is always like that to me. And then gone. That was it. And I think, as you say, a little bit more long-term reaction from her would have been would have been welcomed. But also a little bit more, if possible of a non-conformist reaction towards it because 
there was one bit that really wound me up when when she was like, "Well, Bruce has been watching me all day." Which is when he was going, doing the whole panto villain thing, going, yes, I will have my revenge. When she tripped him up by accident in the canteen. I mean, the big thing that Bruce did in the first part of the book was read out what she was eating. And then the next time when he was watching her, she was like, oh, well, I've just got a salad and a small thing of jello today. Let him read that one out. Ha ha ha. And it's like, bloody hell, Lois. Don't give in. If you want a donut, have a bloody donut. You know, have a bit of spine. It was all like the fat shaming and, and the meal shaming, if you like, was getting to her in that she was giving in, you know, and I just didn't really like that. I didn't, it didn't feel... It was a very passive reaction, yeah, wasn't it? It was it like was. she had been negative conditioning or whatever. Oh, if I have chocolate cake, he'll make fun of me. If I eat a lettuce, yeah, he'll not. If I eat a lettuce, I'm going to be in a Blighton book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was the whole thing like, ha-ha, I know how I'll show Bruce. I'll do exactly what he expects people to do. Ha 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 ha. I'll give him his own way. He's won, but really I've won. So no, you haven't, Lois. Get that chocolate cake, eat it, and then get another piece and throw it at him. That's what you want to do. Especially in a book called Lois Strikes Back, she didn't really do anything. And you're right, any of those. Like, I don't need her to give a speech that's basically, fuck all y'all, fingers up. But at the same time, she could have had a, a very triumphant winning speech there or the fact that she tricked him i really wanted that to be on purpose yes yes i know violence isn't the way to solve things however i still really wanted that to be on purpose that was fantastic and it's not as if like the sweet valley twins always do the right thing first anyway so if she did stoop to his level and twat him with a, a rucksack or trip him over and cover him in mac and cheese or whatever and then she thought, oh, this is the immature way to do it. Next, I'll show him. I'll get more sponsors. I'll win that bike. And yes, he could buy the bike, but he's not going to earn the bike. That would have been perfect. Holy shit. There's the plot we wanted right there. I feel like I, I was born 20 years too late. Yeah, I, I, I should have been writing these. You know how much money I would have spent if it had been written the way you would have written them? I would have been reading them from a young age if that kind of writing was going on. So... <laughs> Quickly to touch on the um, the the B plot for what it was. Bloody Lila's uncle again got another bloody record. Got Johnny Book's new album. I think this is an apology for the cataclysmic fuck up of the previous book, where he was like, "Yeah, I'll sort a band for you." Shit, I went on holiday for three weeks and completely forgot my niece existed. Oh well, good luck. Bye. That's fair, I guess. I I honestly think that someone's getting fired over that though, because late in the book, Jessica was listening to a bootleg copy of a tape of the actual thing, and it's like, I'm sure to the you... torrents. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to the 1980s torrents. Yeah. To the car boot. <laughs> There's a joke that's not going to fly with the Americans. <laughs> to the garage sale. There we go. To the yard sale. Just that, I mean, okay, I can sort of see, yeah, we'll slip Lila a copy of this, just to shut her up because we didn't get anyone for her when she was really requesting this. But the fact that she just made, there was copies being made, just absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. And not to mention that this is apparently not an unusual thing. She often gets these freebies from him when stuff happens. She should already know not to do that. Or he should have stopped giving it to her a long time ago because she does make copies. I mean, Johnny Buck's going to be like, 
you know, I'm I'm selling really well all across the UX, USA, except for like this little suburb of LA called Sweet Valley where nobody ever fucking buys my records. But I do a concert at 3 p.m. at Seca Lake and they, they rock up, so I think they like me. Huh. Yes. I, I will say, I mean, I know this this is a, a continuity thing. The next book, what's the next book after this one? Is it Jessica and the Money Mix-Up? It is, yeah. Yeah, obviously this isn't a spoiler if you've not read it, read uh, listeners. But I do believe early on in that, there's just a throwaway sentence where where um, Jessica is listening to the new Johnny Book album that she's obviously went out and bought. And I'm like, okay, so she's gone out and bought it as well. Well, fair enough, Jessica, well done. You've taken a copy early, but you've still went and supported your artist. You've went out and bought his album legitimately to make sure that he still gets some cash. That's not terrible, I have to admit. Uh, And it's not, even at a continuity issue, it's not terrible. Yeah, it's not terrible, but I'm sure it wasn't even intentional. Oh, no. That gives them way too much credit. Johnny Bug's new album's out. Let's have that. I don't know, because, like, isn't it a mark of pride to have the proper proper album while all your mates have got dodgy tape copies? Because that's how it was when I was growing up for the Americans, when I yelled to the car boot car boot sales where you can get dodgy copies of anything uh before the torrents existed including copies of the exorcist while it was no uh, not in circulation my mum bought me uh kylie minogue's second album from the car boot and it was just like a photocopy a really shit photocopy of the inlay and so for my birthday like if she bought it for christmas i asked for my birthday or vice versa um i asked for an actual copy of it because like people were taking the piss because i only had a photocopied version and the real one had the lyrics inside so maybe it is like a mark of pride there i don't know i definitely don't remember that being a thing here uh, but at the same time, we were doing so many mixtapes that maybe it just kind of fell into that. Like, that was the big thing when I was their age and even into high school, was making mixtapes and mix CDs for each other. So there was a lot of not official things rolling around. Yeah, you do forget, um, Dove, that you uh, you are from Kent. So surely a mark of pride for you would not be to have the actual real copy of the tape. It would be have like to have a a four-piece string quartet playing the, the the thing live at your latest garden party. That'd be a proper mark of pride for you there. Get fucked. Ha. Okay, t- two things. Number one, when I was talking about this, I was thinking of primary school rather than secondary school. So when Wing Mick, uh, mentioned the mixtapes, I was like, oh yeah, you know, about three years later, nobody gave a shit. And uh, number two, I had a pony, so I was fucking winning. Yeah, that's fair. You can't make a copy of them really, can you? No. It's like a, cl- a close air with a saddle on. This is a horse. <laughs> in case others like me would not have gotten that uh, reference, Dove grew up in a very posh location and we like to make fun of her for it. That's one of the many things we like to make fun of Dove for. Uh, talking about the music and, and bootlegging and stuff, I was, uh, this is in a secondary school or, um, yeah, from the age of like 11 to, 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 to 16. I was, and still am, into the heavier side of, of music. So being cool and having the cool new things didn't really come into the, that sort of clique that we were in. But we'd, there'd be about six or seven of us, and what we would do, we would all buy certain subtypes of of heavy metal, if you like. So I would have a certain number of bands on my list, and I would go and buy those. But I'd also like other bands that other people in our group would buy, and then would all make copies and share them round. 
and it wasn't the best and the most you know uh, the uh, the most legal ways of doing it. But as I say, we were twelve years old and C nineties came quite quite easy those days. So that was the way that we got our music on mass um, for the little pocket uh, pocket money we had. Um, but all of this was before CDs. This was all sort of Sony Walkman tapes uh, and things like that. So. Uh, and when the internet came up, it was a lot easier to be able to source money, uh, source legitimate music cheaper. So that's the way we'd do it then when when that happened. Oh, Napstar, we miss you. But yes, um, with you saying that, yeah, I mean, I was unfortunate. Everyone I was friends with were into Take That and I didn't really like Take That. But one girl on the bus was into Nirvana and I was in Guns, into Guns N' Roses. So we used to swap. Um, so I'd do her a copy of like Use Your Illusions and she'd do me a copy of Nevermind or whatever. I think this tag teaming had to work because we can't all be Lila Fowler. Uh, nice little anecdote. We had a one teacher um, who was also into heavy metal and his favourite uh, artiste was Ronnie James Dio of Dio fame. And none of us really knew much of Ronnie James, James Dio at the time. So we asked him if he'd do us some copies and, and be join, join our club, if you like, of bootleg tapes. And obviously, being a teacher, he was like, well, no. But he made us each, uh, like, I think he got, like, a C15, so a 15-minute tape with two or three songs on, and picked a couple of Dio songs from a couple of different albums and gave them each gave, gave us each a copy of this tape as, like, a, ta- a taster for, for Dio, for his favourite music. And then we all went out and went, this is amazing! And, and you know, bought, bought stuff and got that into our rotation quite quickly. So... So yeah, I suppose that was like, yeah, share your playlist. Here it is. <laughs> That's adorable. The nearest I've got to that is we had a teacher who looked like a rock star. Um, all the girls fancied him. He was tall, kind of bulky, long blonde hair, kind of looked like white Jesus uh, with the facial hair and all that. And he would try and rock assembly by doing Christian rock at us. And like, I will admit a sizable chunk of the girls found Jesus thanks to that whereas the rest of us were just sitting there going assembly's just got so much worse what's fucking wrong with kumbaya and now we're gonna rock out whole lot of lord by lamb's blood (laughs) christian rock and christian rap and stuff used to be so cheesy and terrible but i you guys i hate to admit this it's kind of amazing now (laughs) there's this whole christian rap station out of a local city that uh ostrich somehow introduced me to that it's just delightful i i cannot believe it skillet it's one of my favorite bands and they I are love skillet. a christian rock band so yeah it's so weird to me how they've come to this thing uh one thing that you guys talking about it made me think of is that possibly if you were into the very popular music like boys to men or in sync or whatever that having a an official copy would have been really important uh, I guess like the group and the music that I liked and that we were listening to was much more British punk imports and stuff like that. So there was no way we were going to have an official copy. So I guess a lot of times it was very much you were going to have a bootleg and you were cool because you had the bootleg that nobody else had as opposed to you had this official thing. To be fair as well, we liked a lot of um, bizarre sort of pop punk stuff like um, Early Faith No More and Mr. Bungle and stuff like this. And a lot of their stuff just wasn't on general release. So they'd have they'd have their album, and we'd go, oh, all right, we'll all buy the album, and we all bought that. And then we learned out that there was loads and loads of bootleg live concerts. that They, they were official bootlegs, if you like, but they, you just couldn't buy them. You, so we had to bootleg them. 
we had to find places where we could, you know, get a clandestine copy from a friend of a friend of a friend, um, because that was literally the only way you could listen to the vast majority of the back catalogue. Well, on the subject of bootlegs, uh, Don't Cry by Guns N' Roses was massively bootlegged. Uh, they wrote it really early on, and um, when they came to record it, Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon actually already knew all the words because he'd listened to bootleg copies over and over until his tape wore out and so that's kind of adorable and Guns N' Roses were absolutely fine with that so deeply adorable well it's been interesting to see that change because I think for a long time that idea of bootleg especially the live concert bootlegs was such a way to get that name out there and to share that music so it really did drive sales after and now there's just I mean because they now officially record and sell concert CDs and and video and stuff and it's just it's interesting how far that's come we really had to work for our music and i loved it like it was such a community feeling to it that i don't feel anymore with people though i know like teenagers now definitely feel that with their friends that they share music but i it doesn't feel the same to me well none of us had a rich uncle who worked for a record company that could get us the latest stuff though so very clearly we none of us were lila and it's too white utter disappointment yeah we all mock me for being posh but i've got no connections whatsoever at some point should we talk about the book yeah i think we should, <laughs> we should. okay so what did everyone think about the actual race itself i thought the fact that elizabeth was bitching about how slow lois was going was kind of stupid because yeah it was either fat shaming or as wing pointed out Lois being smart enough to know that uh, 30 miles is a long fucking time and you don't want to burn out. Right? Like, so many of the other riders didn't complete. There was just a few people that did. Elizabeth's complaining about this, but come the fuck on. She's being super smart and taking it slow. You have 30 miles ahead of you, Elizabeth. You're not going to want to be pedaling that fast in 30 miles either. Yeah, I think that they could have made more of that because they did start it out with like, oh, and, and Lois bringing up the rear and being really, really slow. And Elizabeth going, I've never ridden a bike as slow as this before and that did lead you narratively you expect later on Lois to be ahead of Elizabeth for a bit maybe but it was it was it was always like Elizabeth kept pace with Lois and was trundling along and going oh this is dull and after 22 miles Lois was knackered and Elizabeth was like okay so we stop and she was she sounded like she could have ridden 60 miles you know what I mean they could have done it where Elizabeth was tired as well but Lois was like no we can get another mile out of it you know and then then you would have saw that that her strategy was to do that her strategy was to be slow slow and steady wins the race and all that um or if if they'd have had lois actually overtaking a few people who were flagging or something just to make it a little cooler from lois's point of view rather than lois starts off last and after 22 miles collapses in a heap and doesn't even get a free ice cream yeah the whole free ice cream thing was weird i can sort of see why they did that in order to have another clue for the Wakefield stroke Nancy Drew mystery bit at the end where she was compiling the clues to facilitate Bruce's downfall. But I think that would have been more common knowledge to Bruce. All his friends seem to know about it. Then again, he does strike me as the type of twat who never listens to his friends or anyone unless they're talking about him. Well, that's true. Though he certainly did learn about the bike and know about all of that. Like, it kind of felt like the ice cream was this big surprise thing at the end, but everybody fucking knew about it. I will say, I did quite enjoy the waves of interest for the bikeathon because it started off early on, very first page or something, with, with um, them said, oh, there's a, Mr. Davis has got a picture of a bike on his desk. What's this about? And then everyone 
was talking about the bikeathon for the next couple of days and the bikeathon this we're going to win this it's amazing and then in one chapter it just started off with the with the unicorns going yeah fuck the bikeathon it's a pile of shit we can't be arsed with that and i thought that was great i thought that was like yeah they've realized it's hard work we're just gonna just go fuck it i can't be arsed and that was very believable, I thought. Very unicorn thing to be like, oh, that's a lot of work. We're not doing it because that's what they do. And I love them for it. Lila, setting trends. And, and not even not doing it. It's not It's not, not big enough that they just don't do it. They have to belittle it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's shit. If you like bikes, you're a bellend. And you're like, oh, all right, then fair enough. Yeah, so that was quite cool. I did also enjoy Jessica's, the way that she got out of it. I mean, I will say that that's a part of Jessica that I actually hate when she is just shirking things, oh, oh, like Elizabeth's chores or whatever it is. Like, oh, I'll, I'll say, oh, we'll do this, shall we, Liz? Yeah, let's do it. And then, literally, I, I didn't turn up because I had to go to a unicorn meeting. Oh, I'll do it next time. It's always, oh, okay then, and, and Liz being a sponge. I'll, I much prefer it when, when Jessica is funny and scheming and actively doing stuff rather than passively not doing things because she can't be bothered. So I did quite like that when she tried to get out of it, she was actively trying to get out of it by letting her tyres down and then saying, well, by the letter of the law, I completed the, the, the thing. I rode four <laughs> miles and then I stopped. I, I found the loophole. Go me. You know, so that was that was quite cool. Yeah, you're not going to like the next book then. <laughs> I think, in fact, you've just summarised the next book. So Yes, it was a joy to recap, let me tell you. Yeah. I'm not lying. I'm reading the next book that I'm recapping, which is the is it the ghost in the graveyard? Ghost in the graveyard, and spoilers for that. Jessica's just winding me up in that book, really <laughs> winding me up. So even though I love her to pieces, nah. So yeah, it's good. It's better when she's scheming. I think we all agree that. I agree. Yeah. We do. We liked Jessica scheming. We didn't like Lois's lack of almost everything. And Bruce Patman was an uninspired, moustache-twirling villain. I quite enjoyed Bruce in this, to be honest. He had a bit more to do, and he was the obvious villain. And there were times I did want to punch his character in the face, which is the sign of um, being involved with the character, I guess. Even though I didn't like what he was saying, that's what you you were supposed to feel, so fair play. No, yeah, that was he was surprisingly well-written, except for that weird little bit i will get my come on with me yes okay that was a little over the top but otherwise he seemed very realistic as the spoiled rich boy who's out to get people which i liked it does make me wonder i think that this ghostwriter was competent to maybe good as a writer but just could not figure out how to write a fat character that wasn't you know a pushover which makes me sad that that sort of internalized fat hate or internalized whatever about Lois kind of came through with Lois because it just speaks to a bigger picture of not only do the characters in story have these issues but the author can't even write a feisty fun adventurous fat character because obviously they all have to be sad and gloomy and oh woe is me I'll tell you what it reminded me of almost every Enid Blyton book with the exception of the one you two have very recently read Quite often in Mallory Towers or St. Clair's or The Naughtiest Girl, anywhere where there's a bunch of girls at school, sometimes even the famous five, there's usually some fat girl in the corner. And 
she's not usually just fat. She's usually quite weak-willed or she's a copycat or she's a thief. But I think this, it's not necessarily that fat is evil. It's just that Blyton's very much healthy, outdoorsy girls with tans is is good. So, uh, yeah, so maybe it is. But anyway, whenever they tease the fat character, the fat character takes it badly because, you know, they're fucking teasing her. And later, the good guys go off and have a little confab about it. And they always think, gosh, if she'd just say, yes, I am fat, but I shall lose weight and then you'll like me, we would like her. But no, she gets upset because we say that she's fat or she's got spots. And, you know, that's just not the way to be. But the thing is, Blyton's writing for 1940s England, where being fat is probably a luxury most don't have after the world, uh, Second World War and rationing and all that shit. Whereas this is for the 80s where anorexia is fast becoming a big fucking issue and they're still approaching it with that same ancient mentality of, yes, you should be ashamed of yourself. How dare you be fat? Go away until you're thin. I mean, I'm not saying that Blyton's characters should do that either, but I'm saying there's just a little bit more reason for her thinking that way, possibly. That's interesting, too, because we didn't have quite so much of a fallout for World War One and World War Two in the same way. Like, obviously, there is some Great Depression stuff going on here, but and there was rationing and stuff to have things to send overseas. But it wasn't quite that same front lines, bomb threats and lack of food and all of sending your kids away to be safe. So that is an interesting difference in how we read things and what the history comes from and what the writers are doing. But you're right, by the 80s and 90s, when all this is happening with Sweet Valley, it was just feeding into that stereotypes that were causing real and lasting harm. And that still exists today. We still have such a huge problem with eating disorders because of that sort of societal level of, of hatred of fat people. That is an interesting spot about where it's coming from in other older books, in older English books. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like, Reading these books, like, if anyone was ever mean to me uh, about my weight, I would tell them to fuck off, but then I would go and have a cry in the bath because, you know, they're right and I'm a pointless waste of space and how dare I be fat when thin is beautiful and, you know, just generally spend a good couple of hours hating myself and eating my feelings. <laughs> but um, these books do not help because they just sit there going, yes, fat is evil, die. They should make a chocolate bar called Feelings. <laughs> If that hasn't been done yet, nobody take that idea. This is how we're going to get rich and get to do this full time. <laughs> That's an interesting perspective, too, because I was not necessarily super confident, but I'm very oblivious to what's going on around me. So I never noticed uh, fat teasing or anything like that. And I kind of just rocked around doing what I wanted to do that other fat kids weren't necessarily doing. Like uh, when I did Color Guard, it was a very thin girl kind of thing. And once I did it, a whole bunch of fatter people joined it, which was awesome. But uh, I just kind of walked around oblivious. I know my siblings were much more aware of the discrimination and issues and teasing they had going through also as, as fat teenagers. So it's an interesting look too, at just different ways so when we criticize Lois's portrayal here, it's not like we're saying there's only one way to write a fat character or to experience uh, fatness and to react to fat hate. But it's just in the context of these books, how they write Lois and how they refer to Lois, 
is really frustrating and infuriating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a fat male, it was um, weird for me at school because obviously kids, kids being kids, there's lots of name calling. I think my nickname at school at one stage was Buddha, which is not particularly nice. Um, but as a boy and with sports, being fat wasn't really a detriment because I could just be like, right, you're on the rugby team. You stand there and knock all o- knock over all the thin little runny kids. Just smash them to the ground and squash them. And if you do that, you get a, a modicum of respect at school. I had the double whammy of um, having a mobility disability. So there was always that air of, well, you're not really disabled. You're just too fat to walk rather than, oh, there's a solid chance that you're fat because you can't walk. Of course, all of your health problems happen because you're fat is something that adults deal with to today. Kids too, but even fat adults deal with that in their own treatment from healthcare. So that's a horrific example of problems that still happen because of societal fat hate. And I think too, even if you were able to be sporty uh, in the 80s and 90s, like when we were going through, there was this huge punishment on either end. If you were a girl and you were too fat, you were this horrible, lazy creature and blah, blah, blah. But if you were a girl and you were too sporty and too strong and too big in that way, uh, you were butch and, you know, you must have been a lesbian and all of these horrible things on that end. So there was just this very narrow field of what you could be to be this healthy, fun, cheerleader-esque girl, which I think has changed a little bit in that sporty teenagers are encouraged more to be strong and to play sports so they're still i mean obviously it's not perfect there's still a bunch of bias with that but it's not quite the same as it was back then so it was really a you can't win you're either to this or to that and that middle ground was so narrow hardly anyone fit into it well look how they prettied up billy layton and made her belinda that's a really good point. That's an echo of, of that sort of walk the line, because while we do see Belinda Layton in later books, I don't think it's ever referred to again that she's, you know, she's sporty spice. I mean, it might sort of say, oh, Belinda was on the softball team, but there's no more mention of, yay, we really liked going to all of her games because she's like the starting pitcher. Now it's just like, like Jessica, Belinda was on the, the softball team, so... Even that's been sort of erased out of her, but that could well be continuity rather than aside from that one book. Belinda, she does get a little bit more than that. She, they, they do often have her, they say, oh, and she's just pitched a perfect game or something like that. So that still is there, but they don't really mention the fact that she's a tomboy anymore or she's very, she's Billy, if you like. Yeah. That, that has been taken away from her character. Also in later books, I was thinking, because... But like I said, that could well be continuity because we keep seeing Grace Oliver vanish and appear as the writers go, oh, fuck, you're a unicorn. Forgot about you, Ginger. That's true. It's hard to know what's continuity and what's, you know, just bad writing, which I guess lack of continuity is bad writing. But uh, still. OK, are we done with this one? Yeah, we've, we've pretty much like talked about every issue in it without actually talking about it because the book is very light on content, I think. It is, so yeah. we brought our own issues and thoughts about music to it to give it a bit more depth. Uh, the structure of the book didn't confuse me, but su- surprised me a little. I'll say that. I thought the bike race would be the big the big thing at the end and then she'd win fair and fair and square if you like there wouldn't be this half a book of subterfuge where bruce is lying i thought it'd be and for the final three chapters we have the bike race and lois just wins 
yeah, the tortoise and the hare. That's, that's, what that's what I was expecting. You think is being sold to you? Yeah. So when I got to like chapter five and it was like the day of the bike race, the bikeathon dawned. I'm like, really? How much of this book's left? So that was a bit of a shock. Wing said earlier that I've been talking this book up, and it wasn't so much that I've been talking this book up. It was just that I was bringing this book up as an example of either the fat girl gets a book or the fat girl allegedly gets to uh, stand up to her bully. That's true. I think it was, it just kind of came across as it's a lowest book, yay, where, yeah, it is a lowest book, yay, but, which that's fair. You probably did caveat it then too. Oh, also, I guess that brings a nice segue into, we should talk about the cover because the Uh, cover shows uh, a girl who is not overweight at all. And this is supposed to be Lois, and it's complete and utter bullshit. Uh, Dove broke it down really nicely in the recap, uh, her comments on the recap. So do you want to discuss the two options you have there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, the two options are, number one, Lois is like three pounds heavier than every other girl in, in the school and therefore needs to die for those three pounds. Or a fat girl is so utterly hideous it will never sell a book. Either way, kind of a slap in the face to anyone who's ever looked at the scales and gone, I'm not happy today. I think there's a third option. I, I think that it was a case of, oh, we need to draw, draw Lois and Bruce on the front. These are just kids. I'll just draw these people. The people who got the art went, yeah, that's fine. Nobody really thought about Lois being fat because nobody actually reads the books or cares. That's probably what happened, but I'm still sticking with minor the offensive reads of that carelessness. That's fair. That's fair. It is. I mean, even if it's just is just that kind of rushing to get these books out, general carelessness, it is still carries some negative connotations to it. Also, I'm looking back at the cover and her hair looks a little stringy. It kind of looks like they just stuck Amy on the cover here. <laughs> oh, let's ah, have a look. Nice. Also, Bruce, Bruce, the hottest guy in school. He just looked like every other kid. Don't all boys look like that? Or or is that offensive to boys? We're not penguins. <laughs> you kind of are in Sweet Valley. <laughs> you come in two flavours, blonde and brown. Fair enough. Yeah, we've got one face. The girls basically come in blonde, brown and redheads, so it's not like there's a ton of change here. But, I mean, I'm looking at the cover now. I'd even say that Lois looks quite thin on the cover of that. I would, yeah. Not normal, not your standard size. She looks she looks thinner than average. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so it's just odd. Just very odd. Actually, I think Lois, um, I'm trying to bring up a full-size copy uh, of it so I can actually see, but I'm thinking that she actually looks prettier than the twins. You know, they've put on massive glass, uh, put massive glasses on her, but she's actually got interesting features, whereas Bruce looks like he's been twatted in the face with a frying pan. His face just looks surprisingly squished and I don't understand it. <laughs> also, he's wearing bike shorts. How sexy. <laughs> Not at all sexy. <laughs> and a weird yellow colored t-shirt which is just not a good look (laughs) yeah so yeah uninspiring cover for a largely uninspiring book for a largely uninspiring lois yeah (laughs) this is why i wrote jessica versus elizabeth because i wanted the lois that i wanted well thank you for giving her to us that was a very kind gift shall we move on to bleak valley indeed why not
Okay. Here comes the inevitable dead silence as we all frantically think. Now, there's a dead silence followed by you going, I got nothing, in that weird voice that you do. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> okay, so, any Bleak Valley thoughts, anyone? I think Bruce is the step-sibling. I'm not going to say it, I'm sorry. I think Bruce is the step-sibling, and I think the fat-shaming towards Lois and the need to prove herself is just another cruel way that her, her parents are getting at her. And in the case of Bleak Elizabeth, I honestly don't think she gets much to eat, so the idea that she actually is fat is kind of laughable but they've just decided that it's another word to throw at you know this nasty little kid that lives under the stairs and uh the step sibling has really picked it up and run with it and she wants to prove him wrong and in that universe it would explain why lois is actually lanky on the front cover rather than heavy it could also be that if that's the case which i, I do like that idea the the whole bike aspect of the thing is very when you read when you see um a film or documentary if you like on prisoners they always have pictures of landscape scenes on the walls because they can't see outside so they don't get much time outside so that they always say oh, i love i love going to the lake and the river and stuff when i'm not in prison or whatever so as bleak valley elizabeth is trapped in the under the stairs or wherever she is having her way of getting back at the step-sibling in her fantasy being a very outdoorsy 30-mile bike ride is quite telling. And winning a bike, which is a representation of freedom, because I know when I was about 12, I always dreamed of stealing a car and driving off into the sunset. I think I would have headed for Brighton, but uh, I still can't drive age 37, so my plan never really worked. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose as well, if we have the sponsorship angle being tied into the thing as well we could say that the sponsorship going the way it does for bleak valley elizabeth the fact that none of the adults seem willing to help the sponsorship in any way they're all like i'm not taking this to work i'll have to ask people i work with if they'll sponsor sponsor my child i don't want to put them on the spot that that could be a sort of a manifestation of low of bleak valley elizabeth thinking well none of the adults will help me in my escape plan or my my uh, ways to get back at the step sibling that was an interesting point too about the bike being freedom because part of why sweet valley lois wants the bike is to uh, get a paper route which is money which is freedom and so i could definitely see that tying into a bleak valley elizabeth being trapped with no access to anything food money what just whatever they give her Back to Dove's point about the fat shame abuse going on, it could also be that she clearly cannot look healthy if she's trapped in this basement or covered under the stairs all the time. So it could really tie into that idea of this 80s and 90s Southern California tanned blonde perfection that drunk Alice probably aspires to and wants in in this kid, even though she does nothing to give that kid the chance to do it. So that sort of body shame happens whether she's fat or not, which probably she's underfed completely, as Dove said. So I can definitely see that carrying out too, which would explain that, yeah, Lois isn't actually fat in the daydream because Bleak Valley Elizabeth has no idea of what it means to be thin or fat. Yeah, and also it could be a thing of they get pizza one night and Bleak Elizabeth is like, can I have a slice? No, you'll get fat. And she doesn't really know what fat is. She just knows that it's bad 
which is why it colours and has previously coloured her thoughts on Lois, if we take everything Blake Valley way. Another interesting point we could have is the fact that she only rode 22 miles of the 30 could mean that Blake Valley Elizabeth doesn't believe she can escape. Maybe if she had ridden the full 30 miles in her fantasy, that would be a tipping point to her thinking, well, I can do this, I can escape, I can get out. But the fact that she gives up with eight miles to go could just be a subconscious way of saying, no, no, I can't do this. Well, big picture, we keep coming back to that in this Bleak Valley discussion. She has these thoughts or plans, and then something goes wrong in the book, which means that something's gone wrong with her plan, that usually it's that she's backed away from it. So you're right, I think that she comes up with these ideas but she doesn't actually believe that she can do it and so it has to change within the story itself which is really heartbreaking yeah 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 because we had that last week didn't we with uh, the war between the twins we did you know it started to go well and then bleak elizabeth had to pull it back because otherwise she might run outside screaming i'm here i'm here will somebody please save me it could also explain the fact that the lois in the book is quite passive um bleak valley elizabeth could see herself as that so maybe the fact that she accidentally trips up bruce or that she's always of the opinion well people like bruce always mock people like me could be a a reflection of her own belief that to a certain extent a she believes what they're saying and b she feels that nothing she can do will change their outlook and reaction to her in any way it's like oh well i didn't trip him up but he's still gonna be nasty you know, I, I can't I can't win, I can't do things right, I can't I can't live my life in a normal way without these things happening against me. That is also really, really heartbreaking shit. Poor Lois. Yeah. No, poor bleak Elizabeth poor, even. Yeah, poor bleak Elizabeth. Poor everybody. That was really depressing. <laughs> maybe they also a bit more lighthearted. Maybe they store an old exercise bike under the stairs where she is. So that's what the bike is. She's been she's been pedaling away on that as 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 a way to sort of distract herself from her bleak existence all right at least she has something i like that a little better though it's still pretty sad yeah but she's barely fed so the poor thing's gonna keel over she's gonna be so sluggish poor thing maybe that pizza that they bought they they sort of give her the crusts she just eats the crust of the pizza and then does 22 miles on the bike before collapsing in a heap yeah and I suppose she would want a paper route, as Wing said, not just because it, it is money and freedom and independence, but also because it's so normal. It's such a thing that kids her age do. Then, of course, she she wants that. And how sad that her daydream is to do a paper route. I mean, I know America does it differently, but doing it as an English person is shit. You actually have to post it through the letterbox, otherwise you get complaints. Yeah, that would be horrifying. We just had to make it to the front porch. And even then, you know, there was some leeway depending on the person you were delivering to. I mean, it's weird watching films with uh, American paper routes on where just a kid just rides past and hurls a paper at your house. That's like, really? That looks fun. That looks ridiculous. I got really good at throwing with either hand to hit the front porch. It was kind of amazing. (laughs) I enjoyed that quite a bit. Did you ever play the old computer game Paperboy? 
Yes, or I played yes. it on my Game Boy, yeah. Oh, that was so good. Game Boy. I played it on my Spectrum. 48 minutes of shrieking and modem no- noises for it to fail to load and have to start again. God, we're old. <laughs> we are. Yeah, and also shouting at anyone who walked through the living room, don't step on my wires! They're very fragile! Or fuck, no, you can't use the phone, I'm busy! <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, Tackle Bleak Valley for another week, I think. So, where would we rate this book? Would you like me to go first, because I was the one who recapped? Yes, it's yours. Why don't you remind us what the ratings are, too? The ratings go from the best rating to the worst. They go, stupendous, good, meh, bad, and then kill it with fire. I particularly would rate this book as meh. Because there were nice bits in it. I enjoyed the old people's home. I enjoyed some of the snark. I enjoyed the unicorn saying, yeah, fuck this bikeathon." That was fun. Um, but largely, I didn't really enjoy it. I thought Lois was wet. I thought the bikeathon race itself was okay. I thought the sponsorship was just incomprehensible and weird. And the fat shaming, not the direct fat shaming from the characters, but the sort of the fat shaming from the good characters and from the the writer it seemed a little patronizing so yeah for me it's solidly in the neck camp which is a shame because i was looking forward to it because yay peripheral character i'm the same actually i would give it a low meh i'm fat she's fat i wanted a triumphant woo in your face kick you in the balls bruce patman you're a twat and instead i got eh, sort of beat him i mean he's still gonna bully me and life's still kind of shit and fat is still kind of evil you know it was just a very sort of traily offy meh kind of story and i wanted a feisty kick-ass lois and i did not get one i agree with all of that i think lois could have if she'd been more feisty and entertaining not even to the extent i want but just more than she was this might have even settled on low good for me, but as it is, it's low meh, close to bad, but just meh, boring and frustrating and annoying in some ways. And then there were super fun parts, so not a good balance overall. Consensus reached. None of us were enthused by Lois Strikes Back. I think we're going to have a meh few weeks, to be honest, and I think it's going to go back to really getting cross with I thought me. it was Grapplegate now. I thought it was... It is. ...kicking into the, the best Jamie Suzanne. You've promised us great things, Dove. What are you telling now? Right? What the hell is going on here, Dove? We are in in the best Jamie Suzanne, but even Michael Grant himself says that Jessica and the Money Mix-Up was a terrible book to write, so... Because we've all read it and it's, you know, does anyone want to stick their hand up and go, yeah, that was my favourite to date, no question. But again, not only did you promise that we were into the good books, because you've been promising me this since January of last year when we started. But yeah, you keep saying that they're the best J.B. Suzanne. And they are. Telling us it's going to be a bunch of meh. What the hell is happening? Yeah, she's changed the tune to it very, very quick. She's got her uh, interview replies from Michael Grant. Now she can, uh, the claws come out. All the books are crap. Unbelievable. Well, not only that, but we've put a year into this. Clearly, we're not going anywhere. She no longer has to tease <laughs> yeah, us with the hope of true. good books later that on. That is true. No, I think it gets going at Jessica's Secret. Jessica's Secret, Elizabeth's First Kiss, The Carnival Ghost. You fucking know how much I love that. I am so looking forward to those. Yeah, Mademoiselle Jessica, Mandy Miller, 
Jessica and the Secret Star, Booster Boycott. Yeah, I am. I am like proper excited for all these titles. It's just we've got to go through a bit of meh to get there. But when we get to those titles, are you going to turn around and go, oh, it's just a little bit more meh to get through before these Just around the next corner, kids. We're nearly there. We'll soon be there. Come on. Uh, no, no, just not, not, not this corner. The next corner. Four hours later. Just the next corner. We'll get there. It's like Sweet Valley Twins 152, the one good book in the series. Thanks. In our end of year podcast, which went up in the middle of January. Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be fair, we had to wait for you to stop listing the titles that you're looking forward to for that. So There are plenty that I'm looking forward to. So you two can just fuck off with your grumpiness and your difficultness and lots of other nuss words that I'm just going to make up. And Shut up, unicorn twat. If we all sit back, we can still hear Dove reading out the list of books she's looking forward to. I'm going to fire the pair of you. I'm just going to find myself some new best friends to do Sweet Valley with. Yeah, fair enough. We love you. (laughs) (laughs) I hurt from laughing so hard, but yeah, you love us. You want us around. It's okay. Yeah, don't worry, listeners. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, clearly. And on that note, thank you very much for listening. We didn't enjoy this book as much as we'd like, but hopefully after we've got through another couple of books of meh, Things will pick up, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, speak to you all next week. Bye, guys. Bye. You have been listening to the Sweet Valley Online podcast number 17, Lois Strikes Back, recorded on the 17th of January, 2018. You can access all our past recaps and podcasts at sweetvalley.online, a member of nostalgicbookshelf.com network. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash sweetvalleyonline or tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com Our music is supplied by Stuart Taylor. He can be contacted at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com for all your own musical needs. We can be found on Twitter under sweetvalley underscore for Dove, Devil's Elbow Pod for Wing, and Bookshelf underscore Raven for Raven. Next week we'll be talking about Sweet Valley Twins number 39, Jessica and the Money Mix-Up. Be sure to join us on the 9th of February for that. Until then, may all your exercise be sponsored.